Blog Talk Radio. For the Bobby Eaton Show, yeah. giving you information you'll want to know, speaking on issues affecting us all, and music for the soul. Yeah. It's the Bobby Eaton Show. Bobby. It's the Bobby Eaton Show. Bobby. It's the Bobby Eaton Show. Bobby. It's the Bobby Eaton Show. For the Bobby Eaton Show, yeah. giving you information you'll want to know, speaking on issues affecting us all, and music for the soul. Yeah. It's the Bobby Eaton Show. Bobby. It's the Bobby Eaton Show. Bobby. It's the Bobby Eaton Show. Bobby. It's the Bobby Eaton Show. Welcome to the Bobby Eaton Show, where we tell our stories our way. Hey, today is uh, a day of life. Uh, we're going to play some Malcolm X speeches along with uh, Martin Luther King, so stick around. What a pleasure to present to you Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. One hundred years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty. I have a dream that one day 
this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream. My poor little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racist, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day right now in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. Let freedom ring from 
Look out, mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. learn about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was an American preacher, humanitarian, and activist who is best known for his role in the African-American civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s. Dr. King, who was inspired by his faith and the peaceful teachings of Mahatma Gandhi, is considered one of history's greatest champions of nonviolence. He used the power of his words, as well as peaceful demonstrations such as protests, sit-ins, and boycotts in an effort to achieve equality for all people. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is a true American hero. Let's learn more about his life and how he inspired a nation and the world to become more tolerant and accepting of all citizens, regardless of race, class, or gender. Martin Luther King Jr. was born on Tuesday, January 15, 1929, in Atlanta, Georgia, at 12 p.m. His name at birth was Michael King. His father, also named Michael, changed both their names to Martin Luther in honor of the world-renowned German reformer of the same name. Martin Jr. was a middle child. He had an older sister named Willie Christine King and a younger brother named Alfred Daniel Williams King. Martin Jr. attended Booker T. Washington High School and was so smart, he skipped both the ninth and 12th grades. He enrolled in Morehouse College at age 15 without formally graduating from high school. During his final semester at Morehouse College, Martin was ordained as a minister. He also took his first steps towards being an activist by writing a letter to the editor of the Atlanta Constitution. In the letter, he declared that African-Americans were entitled to the basic rights and opportunities of American citizens. After graduating from Morehouse, Martin attended Crozier Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania from 1948 until 1951. Martin then began his doctoral studies at Boston University. During this time, he began to draw from his education, his faith, and his natural verbal ability to form the foundation for what would become his critical role in the civil rights movement. While in Boston, Martin met and dated Coretta Scott, who was a student at the New England Conservatory of Music. On June 18, 1953, they were married in Alabama, where Coretta's family lived. 
Martin and Coretta became the parents of four children, Yolanda King, Martin Luther King III, Dexter Scott King, and Bernice King. On December 1, 1955, Rosa Parks was arrested for refusing to give her seat to a white person on a crowded bus in Montgomery, Alabama, a city known for its segregated public spaces. That night, Martin met with other activists to plan a citywide protest that would become known as the Montgomery Bus Boycott. The boycott lasted over 380 days. During this time, Martin was arrested and harassed by people who did not want the changes he was fighting to bring about. The boycott, however, was a success. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled that racial segregation in transportation was unconstitutional. Martin's role in the boycott transformed him into a national figure and the best-known spokesman of the civil rights movement. In the wake of the boycott victory, civil rights leaders recognized the need for a national organization to better coordinate their efforts. In January of 1957, Martin and roughly 60 other ministers and activists founded the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, or the SCLC. With Martin as president, the SCLC helped conduct nonviolent protests and demonstrations across the South to promote civil rights reform. A primary focus for the organization was registering African Americans to vote. The SCLC sponsored mass meetings in key Southern cities for that purpose. In 1963, Martin led a coalition of several civil rights groups in a nonviolent campaign aimed at Birmingham, Alabama, which was at that time described as the most segregated city in America. The nation was shocked to see images of young African Americans attacked by police dogs and high-pressure fire hoses displayed on television, newspapers, and magazines. It was during this campaign that Martin wrote his now-famous letter from a Birmingham jail after being arrested again for his participation in the demonstration. Later in 1963, Martin was one of the driving forces behind the March for Jobs and Freedom, more commonly known as the March on Washington. On August 28, 1963, over 250,000 people of all ethnicities gathered at the National Mall in Washington, D.C demand justice and equality for all people. It was here that Martin made his famous I Have a Dream speech. Delivered from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, this speech inspired the nation and is now considered one of the greatest in American history. Martin was later named Time Magazine's Man of the Year. This further cemented his status as the nation's foremost social change leader. In 1964, at 35 years old, Martin became the youngest person ever to win the Nobel Peace Prize. When he found out that he had been selected, he promised to donate the prize money, over $54,000, to help continue the important work of the civil rights movement. He delivered another powerful speech when he accepted his award that was both moving and motivational. Also in 1964, partly due to the March on Washington and Martin's speech, Congress passed the landmark Civil Rights Act. This legislation made it illegal to discriminate against people because of their race. The Jim Crow rules of the South that promoted segregation and the harsh mistreatment of African Americans were now against federal law. 
This was one of the greatest accomplishments for the civil rights movement. In March of 1965, Martin led a march from Selma to the Capitol building in Montgomery, Alabama to urge President Lyndon B. Johnson and his administration to pass a law protecting the rights of African-American voters. At the conclusion of the march, Martin gave another powerful speech that helped rally more supporters. That same year, Congress went on to pass the Voting Rights Act that eliminated the remaining barriers to voting for African-Americans. Prior to this legislation, there were still areas in which African-Americans were completely disenfranchised, meaning they did not have the right to vote. Over the next three years, Martin's focus shifted from racial discrimination to economic injustice and international peace. He led campaigns in Chicago, Illinois, and spoke strongly against the Vietnam War. Martin's opposition to the war cost him support among white allies, including the president, union leaders, and publishers. Martin and the SDLC also organized the Poor People's Campaign in 1968 in an effort to assemble a multiracial coalition of poor Americans who would advocate for economic change. On April 4, 1968, Martin was shot while standing on the balcony outside of his hotel room at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. At 7.05 p.m., Martin was pronounced dead at St. Joseph's Hospital. He was 39 years old. Martin was buried in his hometown of Atlanta, Georgia. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. changed the course of American history. He worked tirelessly to ensure that all people, regardless of race, religion, or national origin, had equal opportunities and could live their lives without fear of violence and discrimination. Martin is regarded as America's greatest human rights advocate. In 1983, President Ronald Reagan signed a bill creating a federal holiday honoring Martin. The holiday, observed on the third Monday of January each year, is called Martin Luther King Jr. Day, or MLK Day. In the year 2000, it was officially observed by all 50 states for the first time. It's the Bobby Eaton Show. We tell stories our way. It's the Juice Radio Show, bringing the liveest people on our show. Tulsa's top shows, music artists, and entrepreneurs. Sit down exclusively with the Juice. The Juice Radio Show, Tulsa. I might as well drop a drop a little something on your hold up. Belly there. 
Messy Mika, Sunshine, Sunshine, Randall Lopez, Oatman, and DJ Perfecto. Yep, that's my crew. Wake up. Wake up every morning with your morning crew from 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. on the all-new 89.9 FM Community Radio. KBOB. Oh, yeah. On Facebook, the Two Dogs Sports Talk, a place sports talk is talked about from a fan's point of view. North Tulsa's very own sports talk on 89.9 FM and Facebook Live with Drone and Yo. Let's do it. Tune into the Groove Zone. Join Dale, Mr. Groove Taylor, every Saturday from 2.30 to 5.30. You're in the zone on the all-new Community Radio, 89.9 FM. Hi, I'm Denise Parker with Midtown Embroidery. We do it all from any type of promotional, from screen printing, embroidery, school uniforms, Greek lettering, workwear, monogramming. There's no job too big or too small and no location too far. Let us be your one-stop shop. We're located at 2808 East 15th Street, Tulsa, Oklahoma, 74104. Our phone number is 918-982-3254. Our email address is denise.tulsamidtown at gmail.com. Thank you. Searching for ways to grow your business? Or perhaps you would like to invest in Tulsa's African-American community? The Black Wall Street Chamber of Commerce is a great place to start. The Chamber was created to serve and increase the visibility of needs in our community. It is an umbrella organization for local businesses, the Tulsa Juneteenth Festival, BWS Black Women in Business, and the Grassroots Economic Development Fund known as BWS The Power Group. For more information about the Black Wall Street Chamber of Commerce or to donate to The Power Group, visit bwschamber.com. Dawn Tree here, CEO of Underground Tree Studios, your one-stop shop for graphics, web design, and art. You can find us online at www.utreep.com. That's the letter U-T-R-E-E-P.com. As well as finding us on Facebook, Underground Tree Studios, Instagram as Underground Tree. And you can also find artist Dawn Tree online as Artista Dawn Tree. And you can also kick it old school and give us a call at 202 202- 9104409. Don't hesitate to call us. All it takes is a 10-minute consultation. We can have you hooked up. Peace. If your credit starts with a 3, 4, 5, or 6, this is for you. Did you know that it's costing you to have bad credit? You can't get qualified for that house or apartment and you're paying high interest rates along with paying high car insurance, and it may be costing you that job that you really want. What are you waiting on? Take more of a holistic approach. Pick up the phone and call the Credit Shiro at 832-642-1554 or text CAMP to 76626. With 13 amazing services, we restore and repair generations to come. Once again, call the Credit Shiro at 832-642-1554. Or text camp to 76626. If you know better, you do better. Only the Credit Shiro can help you to save the day.
Tulsa, get ready for the all-new show on KBOB 89.9 FM with Joyce Williams and Mr. Daryl Bright. Education, no blame, no shame, no excuses. On the all-new station, 89.9 FM, KBOB. It's the Bobby Eaton Show. We tell stories our way. Mr. Moderator, our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and and our enemies. Everybody is here. As many of you know, uh, last March, when it was announced that I was no longer in the Black Muslim Movement, it was pointed out that it was my intention to work among the 22 million non-Muslim Afro-Americans and to try and form some type of organization or create a situation where the young people our young people, the students and others, could study the problems of our people for a period of time and then come up with a new analysis and give us some new ideas and some new suggestions as to how to approach a problem that too many other people had been playing around with for too long. And that we would have some kind of meeting and determine at a later date whether to form a black nationalist party or a black nationalist army. (laughs) There have been many of our people across the country from all walks of life who have taken it upon themselves to try and pool their ideas and to come up with some kind of solution to the problem that confronts all of our people. And tonight we are here to try and get an understanding of what it is they've come up with. Also, recently, when I was blessed to make a trip or a pilgrimage, a a religious pilgrimage to the holy city of Mecca, where I met many people from all over the world, plus spent many weeks in Africa trying to broaden my own scope and get more of an open mind to look at the problem as it actually is, One of the things that I realized, and I realized this even before going over there, was that our African brothers have gained their independence faster than you and I here in America have. They've also gained recognition and respect as human beings much faster than you and I. Just 10 years ago on the African continent, our people were colonized. They were suffering all forms of colonization, oppression, exploitation, degradation, humiliation, discrimination, and every other kind of Asian. And in uh, a short time, they have gained more independence, more recognition, more respect 
as human beings than you and I have. And you and I live in a country which is supposed to be the citadel of education, freedom, justice, democracy, and all of those other pretty sounding words. So it was our intention to try and find out what was our African brothers doing to get results so that you and I could study what they had done and perhaps gain from that study or benefit from their experiences. And, and my traveling over there was designed to help to find out how. One of the first things that the independent African nations did was to form an organization called the Organization of African Unity. The purpose of our organization of Afro-American Unity, which has the same aim and objective, to fight whoever gets in our way. To bring about the complete independence of people of African descent here in the Western Hemisphere and first here in the United States. And bring about the freedom of these people by any means necessary. That's our motto. The purpose of our organization is to start right here in Harlem which has the largest concentration of people of African descent that exists anywhere on this earth. There are more Africans here in Harlem than exist in any city on the African continent, because that's what you and I are, Africans. The Charter of the United Nations, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the Constitution of the United States, and the Bill of Rights are the principles in which we believe and that th these documents, if put into practice, represent the essence of mankind's hopes and, uh, and good intentions, desirous that all Afro-American people and organizations should henceforth unite so that the welfare and well-being of our people will be assured we are resolved to reinforce the common bond of purpose between our people by submerging all of our differences and establishing non-sectarian constructive programs for human rights. We hereby present this charter, number one, the establishment. The organization of Afro-American unity shall include all people of African descent in the Western Hemisphere. In essence, what it is saying, instead of you and me running around here seeking allies in our struggle for freedom in the Irish neighborhood or the Jewish neighborhood or the Italian neighborhood, we need, to, we need to seek some allies among people who look something like we do. And once we get their allies. It's time out for you and me to stop running away from the wolf right into the arms of the fox, looking for some kind of help. That's a drag. <laughs> Number two, self-defense. Since self-preservation is the first law of nature, we assert the Afro-Americans' right to self-defense. The Constitution of the United States of America clearly affirms the right of every American citizen to bear arms. And as Americans, we will not give up a single right guaranteed under the Constitution. 
the history, the history of unpunished violence against our people clearly indicates that we must be prepared to defend ourselves or we will continue to be a defenseless people at the mercy of a ruthless and violent racist mob. to give ourselves to this struggle until the end. Nothing would be more tragic than to stop at this point in minutes. I want to thank God once more for allowing me to be here with you. I left Atlanta this morning and then I got into Memphis. And some began to say the threats. I talk about the threats that were out. Uh, what would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers? Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life, longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory. Mr. Farrakhan, our whole country has been moving toward integration, equal rights. Uh, you don't want integration. You want separate schools. 
and if possible, a separate territory in this country or in Africa. Separation is not the main goal. That is the goal. If we cannot get along in peace, then we have to separate. Like two married people who have tried to live together and have irreconcilable differences. They go before a judge and there's a settlement and there's alimony. And you want reparations like alimony? Yes. To every African American? You want money paid to every African American? Why should not America do something to repair the damage that has been done to black people for over 400 years of oppression? By giving everyone money? Not money. A fool and his money will soon part. If you gave our people with their mentality today it would go right back out of our community tomorrow. But if we are allowed land and money, a way to become economically self-sufficient, to do for ourselves, to build homes, to build factories, then we would say America is beginning to repair the damage. You have had great success with many of the Nation of Islam men as security guards uh, in your own projects and other projects, sometimes better than the police. And you are hoping that the federal and the state and the local governments will use taxpayers' money to hire your people at various projects. And then um, your prophet and mentor, Elijah Muhammad, said, and I have the quote, the white man is so wicked and filthy that God calls him the skunk of the planet Earth. How do you expect taxpayers' money, that's all Americans, white and black, to want to fund the nation of Islam when there is language like that? The language is harsh. But the reality of black existence and black suffering is also very harsh. Harsh, you call it, other people would call it vile. Do you stand by that language? The harsh language was designed to knock on your door and get your attention. It did. And that we did. The man whose harsh language attracted attention to the nation of Islam most recently was Khalid Abdul Muhammad, then the nation's official spokesman and one of Louis Farrakhan's most trusted aides. In a speech at King College in New Jersey last November, Khalid proudly proclaimed he was an anti-Semite and called Jews bloodsuckers. When the speech attracted criticism, Farrakhan demoted Khalid. He said Khalid had used mean-spirited language, but had also spoken some truth. I would like to go through some of the things that he said and have you tell me, if you will, where are the truths and which are the truths that you still stand by. Jews are sucking the blood of the blacks. Jewelry is really Jew-elry because Jews have been stealing all over the face of the planet Earth. That's why they're called Goldstein or Silverstein. No matter who sits in a seat at the White House, Jews control that seat. Jews control the media, especially NBC, ABC, and CBS. By the way, out of the five networks, including CNN and Fox, only one CEO is Jewish. Final. The Pope is a no-good cracker. Somebody needs to raise that dress up and see what's really under there. Which are the truth? While I rebuked the vile manner of his speech, 
I said, I stand by those truths that he spoke. I stand by the teachings of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. Now, if we are specific here, I cannot answer about jewelry or the name Goldstein or Rubenstein. Those Khalid Abdul Muhammad would have to answer. But if he calls Jews bloodsuckers of the black community, if we're going to be honest, in the 60s, many Jews were the merchants, they were the landlords, they were the furniture persons that we bought furniture from, they were the clothiers that we bought clothing from, and they grew in strength from our trade with them. Today, it's the Arabs and the Koreans and others. So sucking the blood means taking from the life of a community that it sustains your life. Many Koreans came to this country out of their own kind of slavery uh, with very little money and managed to take over working day and night and opening but these doors. But how did they do so, that, Ms. Walters? Their culture and their cohesiveness allowed them to pool their resources. Fine, but in putting down, I mean, you are trying to raise the culture and the initiative of the African Americans, and it's there to be raised. But is the way to raise it, calling those who had raised themselves, whether they were Jews, Koreans, Arabs, well, bloodsuckers? That is not my language. So but you stood again, by that truth. I mean, this uh, is what uh, one uh, has to clear up. Uh, Ms. Walters, I, stood, I told you what truth that I stood by. Okay, but do you stand by I, that? We are dying. Others are growing to strength. Now, if you ask, what is a bloodsucker? A bloodsucker is a leech. And when you put a leech on your skin, that leech sucks blood from you in order to maintain its own life. After all, Miss Walters, we have fought, bled, and died in every theater of war that this country has had for a freedom that we yet don't enjoy. But whites can say, and Irish and Scots and Jews and Italians, that they have also fought and died in wars. What I am asking and what people are asking, and I can go on with other questions, is how does it help your people to denigrate others? It does not help us to denigrate people. But you know, Miss Walters, as well as I, when you exploit the ignorance of a people, that is not somebody lifting themselves up. That's somebody lifting themselves up at the expense of somebody else. It means that something is wrong and very wrong. This book is one of the tools the nation uses to point out what it sees as wrong. It details what the Nation of Islam's research department as a secret relationship between blacks and Jews, claiming the Jews were large-scale slave owners. It is said to be based on Jewish writings. But scholars have criticized the book as inaccurate and distorted. The statistics that you give can be rebuked and refuted by Jewish scholars. But I'd like to go beyond you and me arguing about how many Jews there were as slaveholders. That was over 100 years ago. We now have relations with Germany. We don't hold what happened in Hitler's Germany against the young Germans. Why now are the sins of the fathers being visited upon the sons? Walters, you have relationships 
with Germany today because Germany has moved to right a terrible wrong. Why pick on the Jews particularly, which is what you've done? I have not picked on the Jews in particular. You know, this idea of a victim. No, no, no. It's not the secret history of blacks and whites or blacks and Scots or blacks and Italians. It's blacks and Jews. And the reason for that, Miss Walters, is because we all know that Gentile whites had some part in it. But there are many Jews who do not know the role that some Jews played in the slave trade. And it was a prominent role. But whether it was marginal or prominent, the fact of the matter is Jews have succeeded in the world. Blacks are at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. But you know, especially in our time, Jews have felt that they had a desire and an obligation to help blacks. We had the civil rights marches in which you had so many Jews who participated, and you had young Jewish men who were murdered, like Andrew Goodman and um, Michael Schwerner, but Jews who have felt that they were more allied with blacks and perhaps even other nationalities would feel hurt. Can you understand how they feel? Can you understand, Miss Walters, how we feel? Blacks were bitten by vicious dogs and beaten with clubs and cattle prodded and water hoses put on us. Two or three whites died. Many, many blacks died. Died for what? That we could drink water at a fountain and go to toilet? What was our sweat and our blood in all of these wars for? That we should die to go to a toilet? That we should die to have a cup of coffee? Can you understand our hurt? I can never fully understand what your people went through. I can try as a human being, regardless of what my religion or race may be. I can try. You can try. What I am asking is, can't the nation of Islam put an end to the name calling? I would like to play something to you that I think is particularly horrific. If it happened in a white man's mouth, if I did it, I couldn't even get the words out of my mouth. And maybe once and for all, we can talk about what you consider true or not true or anti-Semitic and so forth. These, this was after Keene College. And this is one of your ministers again, Khalid Mohammed. We have a tape. I'd like you to listen to it. But it's that all no good Jew. It's that all imposter Jew. It's that all hook-nosed, bagel-eating, lock-eating Johnny come lately perpetrating a fraud. Just crawled out of the caves and hills of Europe. So called damn Jew. Those words again represent Brother Khaled's anger and frustration. It is not proper, in my judgment, to mock physical characteristics, cultural habits of another people, what I'm telling you is this, that when I have to look at a movie and see a black person depicted 
as a buffoon. You don't anymore. That's changed. But the image is there. When I've got to go to school and read a textbook about little black symbols. It's changed. It's when no I've got there. to hear people calling me a bird head nigger and making mockery of the thickness of my lips and the broadness of my nose. Only ignorant people do that. So if Brother Collins is saying that which stings and, and hurts, then look at it and say, that's terrible use of language. And then go back and look at the terrible use of language by your people. But this is the present he's saying this. This isn't 10 years ago or 20 when years ago. When our people are suffering, Miss Walters, in the present for okay. what was done in the past. Yes, there should be a change. We should become more civil in our language. But that rebuke and that stinging language of Brother Khaled is enough to make you say, my God, this is terrible. Is it enough to make you say that it is wrong and that you disown it as a truth? But, but I have said okay, that. Okay, like, I think people would like to hear you, you see, say it now. I have said that, but I don't want my words to be used to create division. Khaled Muhammad is my brother. Khalid Muhammad is my son in the ministry. And Khalid Muhammad is a helper of mine. So I am trying to correct him, but not destroy him. And I will not do that so that others can say uh, Farrakhan condemned his brother and renounced him. I'm not in the renunciation, denunciation pattern. I'm in a redemptive pattern. Although Minister Farrakhan told us last week in our interview that he rebuked Khalid Muhammad, just this week in Washington, Mr. Muhammad told an audience at Howard University, and I quote, I'm going to be like a pit bull. That's the way I'm going to be against the Jews, unquote. He also made inflammatory anti-white remarks. Incredible stridency there. Coming up. 45 years ago tonight, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated on a motel balcony in Memphis. A previously unpublished Life magazine photo shows his open briefcase as he left it in his motel room that day. So many people were forever changed by that visit to Memphis. He was there, after all, to support striking sanitation workers. Tonight, Ann Curry has the story of two who were there. Memphis, the spring of 1968. Thirteen hundred sanitation workers on strike against unsafe working conditions. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. standing with them. Memphis has gotten by for a long time with numerous injustices where black people are concerned. King's own advisors urged him to skip Memphis, fearing violence. And there was. Alvin Turner, now 79, was there. And he took that little club. And pop me right there. Cleo Smith, 70, was two. People's getting beaten by exchanges, uh, turn on them. Turner says the job paid just 70 cents an hour, but that wasn't the worst of it. I had been treated like a boy for so long. Boy, get over and do that. I was proud to wear that sign. I'm a man. The message was, I'm nobody's boy. I'm nobody's boy. I'm a man. I'm a man. A man 
thinking about his children. I had to fight to try to make a better community for those little girls. They faced overwhelming odds. There was a little steel voice in me kept saying, hold on, it was going to get better. They were both here when Dr. King gave his last speech. Because I've been to the mountaintop. And he went on to say that I might not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. The next day, Dr. King was killed. Martin Luther King III, on the balcony where his father died, remembers coming to Memphis with his mother. Emotionally, it's challenging because um, it, uh, you know, you, you, again, I was 10 years old. Days later, the strike was settled in the sanitation workers' favor. You're still working as a sanitation worker. Still working, yeah, and enjoying every minute of it. Alvin Turner, now retired, still has his scar. Even once in a while, I feel it, and I said, and then I looked at my kids. I feel that it was worth it. His four children, now grown, all college educated, his dream fulfilled. Ann Curry, NBC News, Memphis. Civil rights, King, Van Oker, roll 20, sound 36. Dr. King, this church is as good a place as any to go back over your commitment to the civil rights movement. When you went out from here in the university and then you went to Montgomery, Alabama and started the bus boycotts there. What was the philosophy of the civil rights movement as you saw it then, more than 10 years ago? Well, I would say then the philosophy was that we must go all out to use legal and nonviolent methods to gain full citizenship rights uh, for the Negro people of our country. Uh, of course, uh, that particular struggle and that philosophy centered on breaking down all of the barriers of legal segregation. So I would say that in that period, uh, the basic thrust for the gaining of citizenship rights for Negroes uh, was to end uh, the humiliation surrounding the whole system of legal segregation. Dr. King, was there something peculiar to the place where you started and the kind of people you attracted. I mean by that, there was a strong attachment on the part of your parishioners in Montgomery to the church. They were older people, weren't they? Yes, I would say by and large, they were older people who uh, participated in the boycott because they were the ones using the bus, bus more than anybody else. And uh, Montgomery was a community predominantly church senate uh, so that uh, it was very easy to get to the vast majority of Negroes because they were in some way connected with a church in the community. Sir, in addition to your commitment to the idea of nonviolence, wasn't it also the only thing you could do, the white community having the monopoly on violence, that if you had tried violence, they would have met it with violence? 
it was the only device open to you, wasn't it? Well, I'll put it another way, that uh, <clears throat> morally, I was led to nonviolence because I felt that it was the best moral way to deal with the problem. We were seeking to establish a just society. And uh, it was my feeling then, and it is my feeling now, that uh, violence is certainly much more uh, socially destructive, and it creates many more social problems than it solves. So I was led to nonviolence for deep moral reasons. Now, there is no doubt about the fact that in our struggle in Montgomery and all over the United States, for that matter, nonviolence is also practically sound. Uh, it would just be impractical for the Negro to turn to violence. He has neither the instruments nor the techniques of violence. We are about 10 or 11 percent of the total population of the nation, and I would say we are about one tenths of one percent of the firepower. So it would just be totally impractical and unwise and unrealistic for the Negro to think of violence. Well, I saw this in the beginning in uh, Montgomery, but this wasn't the basic reason that I uh, turned to nonviolence and that I believed in it as a philosophy. I turned to it because I felt that it was the morally excellent way to deal with the problem of racial injustice in our country. Is there something about nonviolence that made it, and I use that in the past tense, that made it more useful among Southern Negroes than the ghetto Negroes of the North? I wouldn't say there's uh, anything that makes it more useful to uh, Southern Negroes. I think it is true that uh, we've had more nonviolent movements in the South because uh, the problem for many years was more crystallized and, in a sense, more visible in the South. Uh, we didn't have many civil rights activities on a massive scale in the North until three or four years ago. So I would say that uh, we just haven't had a chance to experiment on a broad scale with nonviolence in the Northern ghetto. I have the feeling that nonviolence is as applicable uh, and workable in the northern ghetto as it is uh, in the south. Now, there's a larger job there. Uh, the frustrations at points are much deeper. The bitterness is deeper. And I think that's because in the south, we can see pockets of progress here and there. We've really made some strides that are very visible, and every southern Negro knows that he can do things today that he couldn't do four or five years ago. Wherein in the north, uh, the Negro sees only retrogress, uh, and he doesn't find it as easy to get his vision centered on his target, the target of opposition, as he does in the South. Consequently, this is made for despair and at many points cynicism, a feeling that you can't win, and it simply means that we've got to develop in the North a massive job of organization and mobilizing forces and resources to deal with the problem in the urban ghettos of the North, just as we've done it in the South. In the South, particularly in Alabama, you had visible villains, Jim Clark, Bull Connor, cattle prods, police dogs. But in the North, you don't have those visible villains. Isn't it hard to get your people aroused and directed at something that isn't visible? Well, that's exactly right, and this is what I was saying when I 
said it's harder to see a target. Uh, in the South, in the nonviolent movement, we were aided always on the whole by the brutality of our opponents. Uh, it isn't the same way in the uh, North. The other thing is that you don't have legal segregation uh, in the North as you do in the South. So it is much more difficult to get people to see exactly what you're doing, but uh, it isn't an impossible job. It's, uh, it's a hard, it's a tedious job at times to get people to be aroused from their apathetic slumbers, but I still feel that uh, Negroes in the North can be motivated just as they were motivated in the South. And I think time goes on with the growing economic deprivation in the it will even be easier because people will come to see that not only is something wrong in general, but something is wrong in particular in their own economic and housing situations. Well, what is it? I mean, how do you find it? Uh, it's very subtle in the North, is it not? It's subtle, but it's uh, becoming much more visible. Uh, it, uh, anybody can see that the schools are more segregated in the North today than they were in 1954 when the Supreme Court rendered its decision declaring segregation unconstitutional. Anybody can look around the ghetto and see that ghetto schools are predominantly segregated and devoid of quality. Anyone who moves through a major ghetto of our country will see the housing conditions uh, people don't have to be reminded that they are forced to live in slums in many instances, and they're often rat-infested, vermin-filled slums. And it isn't too hard to see the exploitation that the Negro confronts in the ghetto, where he is forced to pay uh, more for less and constantly trying to make ends meet. But because of either no job as a result of unemployment, uh, a job that is so... Uh, economically unprofitable that the person can't make ends meet. And I think they see all of these things, and more and more they are coming to see them. Because before, the people of the North were looking to the South, and they supported the struggles of the South. Now they are coming to see that their problems are very real, and they've got organized to grapple with them. Was there something hypocritical about the fact that the South existed and the North could point the finger. And then when the Civil Rights Acts were passed in the early 60s, you couldn't point the finger anymore? Well, there was no doubt about the hypocrisy of uh, large segments of the nation on the whole question of, of racial equality. I think the best example is that many of the senators from the North and the West and congressmen generally who voted for civil rights legislation in 64 and even 65 of the Voting Rights Bill refused last year to vote for civil rights legislation because it dealt with an issue applicable to the North, the whole housing question. And uh, this, it seems to me, was the greatest expression of the hypocrisy of uh, many of our citizens and many of the senators and congressmen of the North. But isn't that part of the dilemma now, that people knew that Negroes were being, being denied what was guaranteed to them by the Constitution, by the fact that they were citizens of this country. Then when they were given those rights, do you feel the white community said, well, we've given them all that we have, now it's up to them? 
Well, I think the dilemma is much deeper, and I think uh, one during this period of transition has to be very honest with America. And honesty impels me to admit that America has uh, broad racist elements still alive. Racism is still uh, existing in American society in many areas of the society, North and South. And the other thing is that there has never been a single, solid, determined commitment of large segments of white America on the whole question of racial equality. Uh, I think we have to see that vacillation has always existed, ambivalence has always existed, and this to me is the so-called white backlash. It's merely a new name for an old phenomenon. I see the white backlash as a continuation of the same ambivalence and vacillation of white America on the whole question of racial justice that ex has existed uh, since the founding of our nation. I think the other thing that uh, we must see at this time is that many of the people who supported us in Selma, in Birmingham, were really outraged about the extremist behavior toward Negroes. But they were not at that moment, and they are not now, committed to genuine equality for Negroes. It's much easier to integrate a lunch counter than it is to guarantee an annual income, for instance, to get rid of poverty for Negroes and all poor people. It's much easier to integrate a bus uh, than it is to make genuine integration a reality and quality education a reality in our schools. It's much easier to integrate even a public park than it is to get rid of slums. And I think we are in a new era, a new phase of the struggle, where we have moved from a struggle for decency, which characterized our struggle for 10 or 12 years, to a struggle for genuine equality. And this is where we're getting the resistance because there was never any intention uh, to go this far. People were reacting to Bull Connor and to Jim Clark rather than acting in good faith for the realization of genuine equality. Do you think white people in this country, and I'm talking about non-segregationists, people devoid or thinking they're devoid of racism, do you have any idea of what they want the Negro to be in America? Well, it depends on the level that we are talking here, uh, because I think you have to make a distinction between the people who are genuinely and absolutely committed in the white community on the question of, of racial equality. And I must confess that I think they are a very small minority. I think the vast majority of white Americans uh, will go but so far. It's a kind of installment plan for equality, and uh, they are always looking for an excuse uh, to go, but so far. Why are they looking for the excuse? What is it about the Negro? I mean, every other group that came as an immigrant somehow, not easily, but somehow got around it. Is it just the fact that Negroes are black? That's a part of it, and growing, that grows out of something else. You can't thingify anything without depersonalizing that something. If you use something as a means to an end, at that moment you make it a thing and you depersonalize it. 
The fact is that the Negro was a slave in this country for 244 years. That act, uh, that was uh, a willful thing that was done. The Negro was brought here and changed, treated in very human fashion. And this led to the thingification of the Negro. So he was not looked upon as a person. He was not looked upon as a human being with the same uh, status and worth as other human beings. And the other thing is that human beings cannot continue to do wrong without eventually uh, rationalizing that wrong. So slavery was justified morally, biologically, uh, theoretically, scientifically, everything else. And it seems to me that white America must see that no other ethnic group has been a slave on American soil. Uh, that is one thing that other immigrant groups haven't had to face. The other thing is that the color became a stigma. American society made the Negroes' color a stigma. And uh, that can never be uh, overlooked. So I think these things are absolutely necessary. The other thing is that America freed the slaves in 19... I mean, 1863, through the Emancipation Proclamation of Abraham Lincoln, but gave the slaves no land or nothing in reality, and as a matter of fact, to, to get started on. At the same time, America was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that there was a willingness to give the white peasants from Europe an economic base. And yet it refused to give its black peasants from Africa who came here involuntarily in chains and had worked free for 244 years any kind of economic base. And so emancipation for the Negro was really freedom to hunger. It was freedom uh, to the winds and rains of heaven. It was freedom without food to eat or land to cultivate. And therefore it was freedom and famine at the same time. And when white Americans tell the Negro to lift himself by his own bootstraps, they don't, they don't look over the legacy of slavery and segregation. I believe we ought to do all we can and seek to lift ourselves by our own bootstraps. But uh, it's a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. And many Negroes, by the thousands and millions, have been left bootless as a result of all of these years of oppression and as a result of a society that deliberately made his color a stigma and something worthless and degrading. Apart from wanting to live better, which all of us want to do, to raise one's children in a better way, to be better, does the Negro in America know what he wants to be? I'm convinced that uh, almost every Negro in this country, other than those who have been so scarred by the system that they've become pathological in the process, and we all have to battle with pathology. Nobody really knows what it means uh, to be a Negro unless one can really experience it. And I know we all have to battle with this constant drain of uh, a feeling of nobodiness. But in spite of this, uh, I think the vast majority of Negroes in this country know that they want to be people. They want to be men. They want equality, period. It just boils down to that. And we haven't been able to be people. We haven't been men because of all of the uh, conditions that we've lived with and the syndrome of deprivation surrounding conditions, whether it's in housing, 
uh, in the economic area, uh, in schools, uh, in the vicious credit practices that we face in the ghetto, and all of the problems of closed doors and constant defeats. But uh, in spite of all this, I think we all know, uh, basically, that we want to be men. We want to be persons judged not on the basis of the color of our skin, but on the basis of the content of our character. But you know that many young Negroes don't want anything that smacks the American white middle class. But do they want something that smacks of whatever is the black middle class? Or do they just not want bourgeois values, which after all are the basis of this democracy? Well, I think uh, we have to see what they are saying. Uh, I would be the first to agree that uh, integration does not mean giving up everything that has an Afro-American taint, so to speak, a background. I think there are certain unique things within any culture and certain cultural patterns that when you get to the process of amalgamation, can really lift the whole culture. And it seems to me that integration at its best is the opportunity to participate in the beauty of diversity. I think the other thing that we've got to see is that these young people are saying that there must be a revolution of values in our country. As Jimmy Baldwin said on one occasion, what advantage is there in being integrated into a burning house? And I feel that uh, there is a need for a revolution of values in America because some of the values that presently exist are certainly out of line with the uh, values and the idealistic structure uh, that brought our nation into being. Unfortunately, we haven't been true to these ideals. And many of the values of uh, so-called white middle-class society are values uh, that need to be reviewed and uh, re-evaluated, and in a real sense, they need to be changed. So I think the young people in the Negro community who are raising these questions are raising some very profound questions about our total society. In other words, they are saying that there must be a restructuring of the architecture uh, of our society where values are concerned. And with this, I would agree with. So in the quest for integration, I think we can offer our whole nation something because there are three evils in our nation. It's not only racism, but economic exploitation of poverty would be one, and then militarism. And I think in a sense, and in a very real sense, these three are tied inextricably together, and we aren't going to get rid of one without getting rid of the other. Well, you stood on the Lincoln Memorial that day in August, 63, and you said, I had a dream. Did that dream envision that you could see a war in Asia preventing the federal government doing for the Negroes, preventing the society doing for the Negroes, that which you think had to be done? No, I didn't envision that then. I must confess that that period was a great period of hope for me. And uh, I'm sure for many others all across the nation, many of, of the Negroes who had about lost hope saw a solid decade of progress in the South. 
And uh, in 1954, which was, uh, I mean, 64, 1963, nine years after the Supreme Court's decision to be in the March on Washington, meant a great deal. It was a high moment, a great watershed moment. But I must confess that uh, that dream that I had that day has at many points turned into a nightmare. Now, I'm not one to lose hope. I keep on hoping. Uh, I still have faith in the future. But I've had to analyze many things over the last few years, and I would say over the last few months. I've gone through a lot of soul-searching and agonizing moments, and I've come to see that uh, we have uh, many more difficult days ahead, and some of the old optimism was a little superficial, and now it must be tempered with a solid realism. And I think the realistic fact is that we still have a long, long way to go and that we are involved in a war on Asian soil, uh, which, if not checked and stopped, can poison the very soul of our nation. Dr. King, even if there had not been a war in Asia, would you still not have had this nightmare insofar as the Negro movement for equality then touched on two things that the white community holds sacred, their children, and the property? Oh, I have no doubt that we would have encountered great difficulties, great problems of resistance if the war had not uh, been in existence. So that I'm not going to say that all of our problems would be solved if the war in Vietnam is ended. But I do say that the war makes it infinitely more difficult to deal with these problems. Uh, when a nation becomes obsessed with the guns of war, uh, it loses its social perspective and programs of social uplift suffer. This is just a, a fact of history so that we do face many more difficulties uh, as a result of the war. It's much more difficult to really arouse a conscience during a time of war. I noticed the other day, some weeks ago, a Negro was shot down in Chicago and it was a clear case of police brutality. That was on page 30 of the paper, but on page one at the top was 780 Viet Cong killed. That is something about a war like this that makes people insensitive. It dulls the conscience. It strengthens the forces of reaction, and it brings into being bitterness and hatred and violence, and it strengthened the military-industrial complex of our country, and it's made our job much more difficult because I think we can go along with some programs if we didn't have this war on our hands that would cause people to adjust to new developments just as they did in the South. They said they'd never ride the bus with us. Blood would flow in the streets. They wouldn't go to school and all of these things. But when people came to see that they had to do it because the law insisted, they finally adjusted. And I think white people all over this country will adjust once the nation makes it clear that in schools and housing, we've got to learn to live together as brothers. I think the biggest problem now is that we got our gains over the last 12 years at bargain rates, so to speak. It didn't cost the nation anything. In fact, it helped the economic side of the nation to integrate lunch counters and public accommodations. It didn't cost the nation anything uh, to get uh, the right to vote established. 
Now we are confronting issues that cannot be solved without costing the nation billions of dollars. Now, I think this is where we're getting our greatest resistance. They may put it on many other things, but we can't get rid of slums and poverty without it costing the nation something. All right. Hey, you're here on the Bobby Eaton Show where we tell our stories our way. We're giving you a little bit of a black history, so uh, continue listening. We've got uh, excerpts from uh, Harriet Tubman's uh, documentary, Martin Luther King, Minister Farrakhan, and more. Harriet Tubman began her life in the bonds of slavery, but lived her life helping others achieve their freedom. She really helped black people have a sense of um, self, a sense of freedom, and a sense that, you know, slavery was not right. Araminta Harriet Ross was born into slavery around 1820 in Dorchester County, Maryland. As a child, she was loaned out to different plantations. By the time she turned 12, she was working in the field. When she was a young teen, she suffered a severe injury which would affect her for the rest of her life. A slave owner threw a metal weight at another slave and accidentally hit her in the head. For the rest of her life, she suffered epilepsy, terrible headaches, but she also had these strange visions which she ascribed to God communicating to her. She took these visions as a symbol of her mission, like Moses, to go and free her people. In 1844, she married John Tubman, who was a free black man. A fairly common occurrence in Maryland, Harriet was determined to escape her life of slavery, and in 1849, she finally did it. She risked her life by making her way from Maryland to Philadelphia. She followed the North Star and used the so-called Underground Railroad to make it freedom. The Underground Railroad was an organized group of free blacks, whites, and Christian abolitionists who helped slaves escape to the North. Harriet had made it to the promised land. No one would have blamed her if she never returned to the South, but she desperately wanted to free her family. She made perilous trips back to free her two brothers, her sister, and her sister's two children. When she made a third trip to get her husband, she found he had taken another wife. Instead of returning with her husband, she saved more slaves. Not only did she escape slavery and achieve freedom for herself, but she went back down into the South to bring freedom to dozens of other slaves. 
side of me. Harriet was clever as she was brave, figuring out countless tricks to bring many slaves to freedom over the next several years. The fact that she developed these paths and trails that took people through the country and they traveled at night and they used quilts to, to have secret codes and, and know the paths and then to bring people north across the Mason-Dixon line into Ohio um, to find freedom. So she was a pioneer and I think a very, very strong woman. Her legendary status as an underground railroad conductor earned her the nickname Moses. Well, I think Harriet Tubman's uh, name Moses, you know, comes from Moses from the Bible, leading people to freedom. And it's a very, very proper name, I think, for her and, and one that she definitely lived up to. In 1850, things became more dangerous for Harriet when the Fugitive Slave Act was passed. Instead of being a free woman, she was now a fugitive. She continued to free slaves, but now guided them to Canada so they could truly be free. From 1851 to 1857, Harriet lived mostly north of the border in St. Catharines, Canada. She continued to make trips to Maryland twice a year to save more slaves. Besides her work as a liberator of slaves, Harriet spoke in support of anti-slavery and women's rights. Her efforts made her a wanted woman with a bounty on her head, but she was never turned in. She aided abolitionist John Brown with his plans for the raid on Harper's Ferry. During the Civil War, the government asked her to help the Union cause by organizing a network of spies among black men in the South. Not only was she known as the great liberator, but she also assisted the Union Army going down on patrols and advising Union officers on how best to attack the South. Out in the trenches, she also helped Colonel James Montgomery disrupt Southern supply lines, which resulted in the freedom of hundreds of slaves. After the war, Harriet dedicated herself to establishing schools for freed men in South Carolina. Even though she couldn't read or write, she understood the value of education. In her later years, Tubman worked with her friend, Susan B. Anthony, to support the cause of women's suffrage. Harriet Tubman is relevant today, not only for her work in terms of racial justice, but also in terms of women's rights. After the Civil War, she became an outspoken supporter for the suffrage movement. Get women the right to vote. To help make ends meet and continue to help the causes she believed in, she worked on a book called Scenes in the Life of Harriet Tubman. In 1908, she established a home for older poor African Americans in Auburn, New York, which she moved into in 1911. She lived there till her death in 1913 from pneumonia. She was buried with full military honors. I was young, but I remember. Harriet Tubman, um, you know, has a lot of significance for black people, particularly in the age of Obama, because she kind of started 
the liberation of black people, um, you know, in the days of slavery and, and really set the path of civil rights uh, in the United States. Harriet Tubman's bravery and determination allowed her to accomplish incredible things throughout her amazing life. From she is someone that you cannot forget. She is someone that, that really kind of changed our perception of what equality and freedom and liberation and civil rights mean. Eldest of two children in 1913, Rosa Louise McCauley was raised on her grandparents' farm in Pine Level, Alabama. As a child, Rosa was exposed to the realities of segregation. She walked to school daily because the elementary school bus system prohibited black students from riding. Rosa later attended the Alabama State Teachers College High School. However, due to both her grandmother and mother's illnesses, she was forced to drop out. At 19, Rosa met Raymond Parks, who worked with Montgomery's NAACP chapter. After their marriage in 1932 and much encouragement, she earned her high school diploma. Rosa joined Raymond in the NAACP, serving as the chapter's secretary and youth leader. History is peculiar. It places gifted and talented women and men in situations where they must make a choice. The choice she made was on the afternoon of the 1st of December, 1955, on a bus as she was going home from her seamstress job in a department store in Montgomery, Alabama. Rosa, along with three other black passengers, were told to give up their seats to a white male passenger. She refused and was arrested. An all-day bus boycott was organized on the day of Rosa's trial, December 5, 1955, where she was fined $14 and found guilty. She was a role model for courage in the face of racial injustice. Rosa Parks, through her quiet eloquence, through her commitment both to her faith and to the cause of civil rights and racial equality, was prepared to sacrifice everything her security, even her life, to fight for what was right, at least her perception of what was justice. Thousands of people walked, carpooled, and took cabs to work. The boycott lasted 381 days, with the 26-year-old Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. as their leader. Rosa was not the first person to refuse to give up her seat. Two other women were previously arrested for the same offense. However, it was this quiet 42-year-old who became the face of the Montgomery bus boycott. In 1956, groundbreaking history was made. The Supreme Court decision by a 9-0 vote supported the civil rights position calling for an end to racial segregation on municipal buses. Unable to find work, largely due to her political stance, the Parks moved north to Detroit, Michigan. And by 1965, Rosa began to work for Congressman John Conyers until 1988 when she retired. In memory of her husband and in her vision for a better tomorrow, Rosa co-founded the Rosa and Raymond Parks Institute for Self-Development. 
which educates young people on the civil rights movement, gives freedom bus tours, and provides youth with professional guidance. Rosa also worked giving lectures and advocating for social justice. Rosa Parks passed away on October 24, 2005. She was the first woman and second African-American to lie in honor at the U.S. Capitol Rotunda. Rosa received over two dozen honorary doctrines and numerous national and international awards, among them the Medal of Freedom from President Clinton and the Congressional Gold Medal of Honor. Rosa was a grassroots activist for social justice and peace through her efforts in the civil rights movement to her participation in the anti-apartheid movement for South Africa. Although she never planned on getting arrested, her simple action changed the course of a nation. I think Mrs. Park unexpectedly had greatness thrust upon her. I think she was born for it. And I do think she achieved it. You see what I mean? But had she not, on that particular day, said, I'm not moving, my feet hurt, we would have a different nation and a different world. Suffer and die to give me an education to slight, oppress, or discourage my people. Because whatsoever education I acquired out of their sacrifice of over 300 years, I shall use for the salvation of the 400 million black people of the world. And the day when I forsake my people, may God Almighty say there shall be no more light for you. I unequivocally rejected the racist assumption of much white American Christianity, namely that God had created a black man inferior. And that he intended Negroes to be a servant class, viewers of wood and drawers of water. Well, I predicated my view of man on the doctrine of Imago Dei. All men, regardless of color, are created in the image of God. Now, from this premise, follow the equality of all men and the brotherhood of all men. The biblical injunction of Acts 17:26 reminds us that he created of one blood all nations of men that dwell on the face of the earth. I was most interested in brotherhood within his own race. Because if Negroes are created in God's image, and Negroes are black, if the white man has the idea of a white God, let him worship his God as he desires. We have found a new ideal. Because whilst our God has no color, and yet it is human to see everything through one's own spectacles, and since the white people have seen their God through their white spectacles, we have only now started to see our God through our own spectacles. Congo, which they cannot use, they have not the resources to develop now the intelligence. 
The French have more territory than they can develop. There are certain parts of Africa in which they cannot live at all. So it is for you to come together and give us a United States of Africa. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We are not going to be a race without a country. God never intended it, and we are not going to abuse God's confidence in us as men. We are men, human beings, capable of the same acts as any other race, possessing under first circumstances the same intelligence as any other race. Now, Africa's been sleeping, not dead, only sleeping. Today, Africa's walking around not only on our feet, but on our brains. You can enslave as was done for 300 years the bodies of men. You can shackle the hands of men. You can shackle the feet of men. You can imprison the bodies of men. But you cannot shackle or imprison the minds of men. Lie down, black men, and take. Reach up, black men and women, and pull all nature's knowledge to you. Turn ye around and make a conquest of everything north and south, east and west. And then when you have wrought well, you will have merited God's blessing. You will have become God's chosen people. And naturally, you will become leaders of the world. And as you bow down to the white man today, so a lot of races bow down to you and call you a race of master because of the superiority of your mind and your achievements. Because no race has the last word on culture and civilization. They do not know what we are capable of. They do not know what we are thinking. They're thinking in terms of dreadnoughts, battle ships, aeroplanes, submarines. You know what we're thinking about? That is our own private business. <laughs> so give us credit for being able to use our minds. And with people becoming conscious of themselves, determined to use their minds, you do not know to what extent they can go. Liberate the minds of men, and ultimately you will liberate the bodies of men. We love the white race, not for social fellowship, but for the common brotherhood of God intended we should live. What satisfaction can anyone get in being happy and see his brother wallowing in filth, dirt, and disease? How can you be happy living in luxury and your brother's living in disease, and then when you try to help the one out of the disease, the subtle culprit talks about disloyalty? Black men of Carthage, black men of Ethiopia, of Timbuktu, of Alexandria, gave the light of civilization to this world. Ethiopia shall stretch forth our hands unto God, and princes shall come out of Egypt. <laughs> the classes, nations, races have been quite, quite... Douglass's life sort of stands across the expanse of the 19th century as a symbol of the worst and the best in the American character. He was the slave who saw most of the worst brutalities of slavery. He was the slave, however, who freed himself and by luck, pluck, and gifts remade himself. Most importantly, he had an enormous ability to capture in words the meaning of what America is about. I have no accurate knowledge of my age, never having seen any authentic record containing it. By far the larger part of the slaves know as little of their ages as horses know of theirs, and it is the wish of most masters within my knowledge to keep their slaves thus ignorant. I do not remember to have ever met a slave who could tell of his birthday. Frederick Douglass, 1845. 
It was along the eastern shore of Maryland near a quiet creek called the Tuckahoe that the life of the man who would inspire a nation began. Frederick Douglass was born in Talbot County on Maryland's eastern shore. He wasn't certain of his birth himself. In fact, he thought that he had been born in 1817. But slave records tell of the birth of Frederick Augustus to a slave named Harriet in February 1818. He knew who his mother was, although she was a distant figure in his life. Uh, she lived on another plantation. He never really knew who his father was, although he came to believe that his father was definitely a white man and probably his, his master. Raised by his grandmother at the far end of the plantation, the tiny boy named Frederick led a carefree, playful life along the muddy shores of the Tuckahoe until he was six. At about age six, Douglas found that his childhood had come to an abrupt end. He was assigned to act as the companion and caretaker of the child of the owner of the plantation. And as a result, he could get in trouble for things that he either had done or had failed to do. And so it became immediately apparent that he was no longer a child, but was a slave and was part of that institution of slavery. The stories in the news today remind me of the sentiments of almost 50 years ago, when many young black people felt that policing for them was unfair. During that time period, being black in America meant that you didn't walk down the street with the same sense of safety and the same sense of privilege as a white person. There was absolutely no difference in the way the police treated us in, in Mississippi than they did in California. They may not have called you nigger every day, but they treated you the same way they did in Mississippi. The police jump on you, eat you up, put the gun at your head. This is what we were going through on a daily basis. I'm tired of it. I'll stay here a long time. Now, as then, the need for change is real. Nearly every black man I know has a story about an encounter with the police. I myself have been stopped, searched, and had a gun put to my head for no rational reason. One response to police brutality in 1966 was the founding of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. We use the uh, Black Panther as our symbol because of the nature of a panther. A panther doesn't strike anyone, but uh, when he's assailed upon, that he'll back up first. But if the aggressor continues, then he'll strike out. When I first met Hugh and Bobby, they were uh, in the process of forming an organization for uh, primarily self-defense. We didn't plan to have a nationwide organization or anything like that. We were organizing, dealing with the problems in Oakland. In 1966, California law allowed civilians to carry loaded weapons as long as they were not concealed 
as do many states today. And the newly formed Black Panther Party took advantage of the law. The uh, California Penal Code Section 12020 through 12027 and also the Second Amendment of the Constitution guarantees the citizen a right to bear arms on public property. Huey said we're going to carry our guns and we're going to follow the police. And if they stop someone, we're going to stop. We're going to maintain a legal distance and we're going to observe these so-called officers in the performance of their duty. get out of the cars. We would walk up to the scene. Those who had rifles who carried them in the open are clearly visible. We would stand at a, um, a distance where the police couldn't say they were interfering with their arrest or their detention of the individual and uh, make sure that uh, there was no brutality. The police were confronted by citizens who were not just voicing their opinions, but were armed. They would uh, take the weapon and pass it across like this, and it would sweep right over the officer. No one would do anything until a policeman ejected around in the chamber. Then we would all eject rounds in the chamber all up and down the streets. You could hear this clack, 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 clack. And then when the traffic stop or the incident's over, they bring the weapon down across by you like this and get back in their car and drive off. It was pretty intimidating. The Black Panther Party spread quickly, partly because young African-Americans across the country had similar experiences with the police. We would get calls from Atlanta, Nashville, Raleigh, North Carolina, from Washington, D.C., Bridgeport, Connecticut. Every city, small or large, you can think of wanted a chapter of the Black Panther Party. There's no question that the Panthers were provocative, but there's also no question that law enforcement exaggerated the threat they posed and overreacted. Do you feel the nation is in trouble? I think very definitely it is. What is the answer? The answer is vigorous law enforcement. That's the only answer. That's the only answer. How about justice? You hear a lot about justice with law enforcement. Justice is merely incidental to law and order. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover today asserted that the Black Panthers represent the greatest internal threat to the nation. Hoover said the Panthers have perpetrated numerous assaults on police, and have engaged in violent confrontations throughout the country. When Hoover identified the Black Panther Party as the number one threat to the uh, national security of the United States at a time when they're fighting in, in Vietnam, you know, of course that was crazy, but it was politically very effective. And it says to law enforcement at the local level, we can take the gloves off now. We don't have to respect the civil liberties, and, and we can go after them with everything we got. Police say there was sniper fire throughout the early morning hours, so they moved in cautiously. Police and, and Black Panthers clash in Houston, New Orleans, and other cities. The Black Panther police in the three dawn hours in Chicago today. Police and Negroes fought a pitched battle. Obviously, 
we are nowhere near this today. In fact, we may be at a transformative moment. People of all ages and races are recognizing the problems with policing in black communities and are protesting. Now, there's a chance for real change. But police departments and political leaders must not overreact as they did 50 years ago. They need to listen. When I say no, you say violence. No. I'm John Green. This is Crash Course U.S. History, and today we're going to look at one of the most important periods of American social history, the 1950s. Why is it so important? Well, first, because it saw the advent of the greatest invention in human history, television. Mr. Green, Mr. Green, I like TV. By the way, you're from the future. How does the X-Files end? Are there aliens or no aliens? No spoilers, me from the past. You're going to have to go to college and watch the X-Files get terrible, just like I did. No, it's mostly important because of the civil rights movement. We're going to talk about some of the heroic figures like Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks, but much of the real story is about the thousands of people you've never heard of who fought to make America more inclusive. But before we look at the various changes that the civil rights movement was pushing for, we should spend a little time looking at the society that they were trying to change. The 1950s has been called a period of consensus, and I suppose it was, at least for the white males who wrote about it and who all agreed that the 1950s were fantastic for white males. Consensus culture was caused first by the Cold War. People were hesitant to criticize the United States for fear of being branded a communist. And second, by affluence. Increasing prosperity meant that more people didn't have as much to be critical of. And this widespread affluence was something new in the United States. Between 1946 and 1960, Americans experienced a period of economic expansion that saw standards of living rise and gross national product more than double. And unlike many previous American economic expansions, much of the growing prosperity in the 50s was shared by ordinary working people who saw their wages rise. To quote our old friend Eric Foner, by 1960, an estimated 60% of Americans enjoyed what the government defined as a middle-class standard of living. And this meant that an increasing number of Americans had access to things like television and air conditioning and dishwashers and air travel. That doesn't really seem like a bonus. Anyway, despite the fact that they were being stuffed into tiny metal cylinders and hurtled through the air, most Americans were happy because they had, like, indoor plumbing and electricity. What did you say? We at war? <laughs> well, I remember when the first plane hit, I was on set doing this uh, soap opera called uh, The Guiding Light. Right? Oh, okay. I know that well. And they said, oh, so you won't believe this. A plane accidentally ran into the World Trade Center. I said, accident? I said, yeah, he would have to lose his eyesight mid-flight to miss a building that big. Yeah. And yeah. that's how I knew that. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, that's all it in the beginning because you were thinking
buried in New York proper. So they had to be buried down there. That's why that's an African burial ground, was because blacks and Jews were not allowed to be buried in the city unless they owned the property, which is Senegal Village, which is in Central Park. That's what Central Park. Can you break that down for me? Well, well, it's Senegal Village. It's not Senegal Village, because that was first purchased by the African Methodist Episcopal Church. So that 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 area basically, in, in fact, I have something up online that I did there. My son and I did a documentary on Senegal Village. It's not Seneca Village. Okay, because yeah, my understanding is Seneca. Yeah, the way it's pronounced. But Seneca. to take your attention away from the realities of that was a uh-huh. little African village. That was an African city down there, and it was purchased by the African Methodist Episcopal Church. That's why it's called Senegal Village. Do you know the parameter of the village and at what time the village is up? Well, you're, well, you're dealing with, the, you know, with like late 1700s, early 1800s, just the whole scope of things. And you're, you're, you're looking at, and, and again, I may be off some, but it's in the 80s. And it ran between like Central Park uh, West and 7th Avenue. Something terrible happened here. And for decades, people didn't talk about it. I was an adult before I ever heard about it. It was something that was, was, was hidden. This entire historic community was obliterated. Bodies dumped in rivers, bodies dumped in mass graves. It was an absolute massacre. This story isn't one you'll find in most history books. And almost 100 years later, the facts of what exactly happened that day are still unraveling. So we're driving in what's known as Black Wall Street. It's where one of the nation's worst episodes of racial violence took place. In 1921, a neighborhood in Tulsa, Oklahoma, called the Greenwood District, was a bustling community of Black-owned businesses. Tulsa locals know that period of Greenwood's history as a kind of golden age. If you can imagine just a, um, like an old time downtown, things like um, movie theaters, pharmacies, hair salons, and so forth. They called it Black Wall Street. It was a mecca. It was a huge success. But Black Wall Street was also an anomaly. It thrived at a time when the KKK was incredibly active in Oklahoma, and the nation had just been through the Red Summer of 1919, when white mobs murdered Black people in dozens of incidents across the U.S. There needed to be a sort of match or an igniter tossed on these embers, and that event was, that trigger event, was an incident that involved two teenagers, Dick Rowland, 19-year-old, Black boy who shined shoes downtown. Sarah Page, 17-year-old white girl who ran an elevator in a downtown building called the Drexel Building. He went to the building, boarded the elevator. Something happened. Sarah Page began to scream. They both ran out of the elevator. Now, we don't know exactly what happened in this elevator. But a day later, Roland was arrested and taken to the courthouse. The local newspaper ran an article claiming Roland had assaulted Page. Even though Page refused to press charges, the article was essentially a call to action for whites. A large white mob began to gather 
on the lawn of the courthouse. Dick Rowland was in jail on the top floor. A number of black men, several dozen, marched down to the courthouse to protect him, some of them armed. There was a struggle between one of the black men in the small group and one of the white men in the larger group, and things sort of went south from, from that point. Hundreds of white people descended upon Black Wall Street armed. Black residents withdrew behind the railroad tracks that marked off the Greenwood District. Some of them were armed and fought back, but they were outnumbered by the white mob, which shot their way through. Murdered. They looted and they set fire to Black Wall Street. This was the strategy, if you will, of how to deal with these communities, with these successful black communities. The effects were uh, disastrous. For two days, the Greenwood District burned. Martial law was declared and the National Guard was brought in. By the time the massacre ended, Greenwood was in ruins. More than 1,200 homes were destroyed and 35 blocks burned. The exact number of casualties is harder to pin down. Some initially only reported that white people died. Others reported somewhere between 30 and 100 mostly black casualties. But estimates now put that number closer to 300. As for those that survived, Thousands of them lived in tent cities in the months that followed and were left to pick up the pieces of rubble they once called home. After the massacre, the cover-up started. Records went missing from city files, including the very article that started it all. It makes photos from this time all the more important as part of the historical record. But back in 1921, these images served a very different purpose. So photo postcards like these were pretty widely distributed after the massacre. At the time, they were a part of white supremacist culture and kept as souvenirs of racially charged crimes. Now they're preserved to make sure this part of Tulsa's history isn't forgotten, and they paint a clear picture of how much destruction there was that day. On the postcards, it's called the Tulsa Race Riot, a name that itself sort of erases what really happened by calling it a riot. It's a way of, of trying to rewrite the history, uh, assuming that there were both sides at fault, and that was not the case. I call it a massacre, uh, and I call it that because that's what it was. Greenwood eventually rebuilt, but nearly a century later, there's a part of this story that still haunts the city. No one actually knows where the victims' bodies are. We got to find our people. We got to put them at rest. You know, if not, we continue to be haunted by what was done so many years ago. Kevin Ross, a local writer, is one of many in Tulsa descended from people who lost everything in the massacre. So in this cemetery, there are only two official victims of the Tulsa. Right. How many victims do you think there are? After all these years, I think 300 is putting it mild. In 1997, the city finally put together a commission to study the massacre and help piece together what happened in 1921. They compiled records and eyewitness accounts. The bullets were just raining down over us. They set our house on fire and went right straight to the curtain. The curtain on fire. 
These accounts are especially important now because none of these survivors are alive anymore. And they also provided new information. Some mentioned trucks, like this one, loaded with victims of the riot. One riot witness in particular came forth testifying that he saw bodies being dumped in Oakland Cemetery. This is it. This is the area. Using the survivor accounts, records, and eventually radar, the city was able to pinpoint three locations with anomalies in the soil. Only one step was left, to excavate. But it was something the city, at the time, wasn't up for doing. For many Tulsans, it was a part of history that forgotten and not worth investigating. In some ways, today, that sentiment remains. Kind of waste of money. Why do you think that? It's over, it's done with. But there are clear signs of a city that's ready to come to terms with the dark chapter in its history. Honestly, that's a lot of missing people, people that probably had families. We owe it to the people who, whose blood has actually fertilized the grounds of this place. There was a tremendous amount of racism. Injustice plus time does not equal justice. Today, a new mayor is reopening the investigation. I think a pretty basic compact that a city makes with its citizens is if somebody murders you, we will do everything we can to find out what happened to you and give your family closure. And whether that, whether you were murdered yesterday or you were murdered 98 years ago. The city will be looking into the three areas that the commission noted. That process of finding out what lies beneath Tulsa and DNA matching any remains with descendants could take years. The investigation is just one part of a bigger historical reckoning, but the reality is it can't undo the crimes or the cover-up of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. This, this story is the greatest conspiracy of silence that I've ever seen in history. Thanks for watching. If you haven't already heard, we've launched a paid membership program called The Video Lab. For a monthly fee, subscribers get access to tons of special features. Becoming a member is the best way to support our work, so head on over to Vox.com slash join to sign up. See you there. Okay. My name is Chris. And before this I is Bobby started. Eaton here on the Bobby Eaton Show, where we tell our stories our way. We'll be doing a series of this black history with our iconic uh, people who paved the way so that we can be able to do what we do today. So tune in on Saturdays and we're going to be talking about black history. And I believe black history is more than just a month. It's United States history, America's history. So tell your children, tell your family, tell your friends to tune in to the Bobby Eaton show. And we're here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday 6 p.m. Central Standard Time, uh, also on Saturdays like today from 12 to 2 p.m. Coming up at 2.30, it's uh, Dale, Mr. Groove Taylor. He's going to be playing some uh, old school gems for you. But we want you to tune in so you can get this information, this knowledge, this history that I think that all African-American people and people of color and all people should know. You know, a great injustice has been done uh, for several years, and as we struggle 
for equal opportunity and equal justice, let's unite and come together and fight in the struggle because um, it's rough out here. So with that being said, I want you to tell your family members, tell your friends, tell everybody that you can to tune into the show because, hey, it ain't no stopping us now.
don't want nobody else to ever love me. You are my shining star, my guiding light. I love that to see. There's not a minute, hour, day or night that I don't love you. You're at the top of my list cause I'm always thinking of you. I still remember in the days when I was scared to touch you. How I spent my day dreaming, planning how to say I love you. You must have known that I had feelings deep enough to swim in. That's when you opened up your heart and you told me to come and show my love. A thousand kisses from you is never enough. I just don't wanna stop. Oh my love, a million days in your arms is never enough. Woke up today, looked at your picture just to get me started. You up, but you weren't there, and I was broken hearted. Hung up the phone, can't be too late. The boss is so demanding. Open the door up, and to my surprise, there you were standing. Who needs to go to work so for another dollar? I'd rather be with you, cause you make my heart scream and holler. Love is a gamble, and I'm so glad that I am winning. We've come a long way, and yet this is only the beginning.
ain't got no shit. After all of the fighting and the screams, last up the keys, then you got in the rain, knowing that it's raining. I don't know how long it took, but I know that I drove all around trying to calm it down, wouldn't ask for my car. Oh, 
from back in the day, and he called it. Calls it don't push. <laughs> don't push. I think he's ready. I think I'm ready. I'm ready now. Let's do this. Mm-hmm. I want you. Thank you. 
or text CAMP to 76626. With 13 amazing services, we restore and repair generations to come. Once again, call the Credit Shiro at 832-642-1554 or text CAMP to 76626. If you know better, you do better. Only the Credit Shiro can help you to save the day. KBOB, the home of the Bobby Eaton Show, the Juice Radio Show, and Two Dogs Radio Show. Yeah. I do it big. Okay. You better R-E-S-P-E-C-T me. Tulsa, Oklahoma. Stay connected and call us now at 646-716-5525 and press 1 to go live. Let's do it. Tune into the Groove Zone. Join Dale, Mr. Groove Tape, every Saturday from 2.30 to 5.30. You're in the zone. On the all-new Community Radio, 89.9 FM. You're in the Groove Zone, and I'm your host, Dale, Mr. Groove Taylor. On the all-new 89.9 KBOB FM. So, I kind of started off, I started off the show, let's see, I usually start the show off, um, doing my 70s segment. But this time, I thought I'd do something a little different. I thought, thought I would kick off the uh, the 80s and then go back to the 70s for a change. Kind of funk it up a little bit more. You know, music from the 80s was just a little bit more um, high-tech than the 70s. So I thought I would uh, switch it up, do something a little different, and uh, and kick it off from uh, the 80s and then work my way back to the 70s. And, um, <clears throat> oh, hey, 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 how you doing? Yeah, um, I'm on live. Yeah, yeah, uh, I've been back for a minute now. Um, you know, back from Dallas and um, I'm back in Tulsa now. So, you know, I'm doing my thing, you know, back with my people, home, family, all that good stuff, you know. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, you look, you looking pretty, you looking real good to yourself. <clears throat> you haven't aged at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, I, I appreciate you. Keep them, keep them coming. You, uh, you want to ask me a question? You want to ask me a question? Oh Lord, here we go. <clears throat> she want to ask me a question. So, what you want to ask me? What you?